Please be seated. Our Lenten meditation has been on the words of Pilate recorded by John, Behold the man. Earlier in John's gospel, in fact at the very beginning, he told us that the word was made flesh. The word that was with God and was God had become flesh, had become as we are. This is exactly what the small catechism teaches. Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. This means that Mary is nothing less than the mother of God's Son. And since her Son is true God, it is most certainly correct to call Mary the mother of God. The Lutheran confessions are so adamant about this, they label anyone who would deny that Mary is the mother of God a Nestorian heretic, and no one would want to be that. In the 4th and 5th century, Nestorius argued that Mary must only be the mother of the human part of Christ. But that simply won't do. The child that was inside of her, the child to whom she gave birth, was also true God. The early church father, St. Ambrose of Milan, penned the hymn that we just sang, which included this anti-Nestorian verse about Mary. Here a maid was found with child, yet remained a virgin mild. In her womb this truth was shown. God was there upon his throne. But of course, being the mother of God was not nearly as glorious as it might sound, at least not here in this life. Mary, who was in truth an innocent virgin, was suddenly thought to be a fornicating adulteress by everyone around her. Even Joseph had his doubts until an angel intervened. Her child, who in truth was God in human flesh, was thought to be a bastard child and the embodiment of her sin. In other words, from the very start, Mary bore much shame and much suffering on account of her holy child, though she was herself innocent. In this, she was much like her child and Lord, who was innocent and yet thought to be guilty of everything from blasphemy to treason. This is why Ambrose also has us saying, Marvel now, O heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth. No sooner had God entered our world when all manner of shame and accusation were heaped up against him by sinners. And by extension, Mary herself bore some of that. Falsely accused, shunned by family and friends, Mary gives birth to God in a subhuman abode amidst dung and straw. Even then, she did not despair, but clung to the word of God that had been spoken to her by the angel. Though she was looked down upon, with undeserved shame heaped upon her, she persevered as a faithful mother. And after 40 days, 
took her baby to the temple for the rite of presentation. This is where she met the white-haired Simeon, who spoke words to strengthen her, who by the power of the Holy Spirit also knew that her child was the Messiah. But he spoke a dire word to her as well. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, he said. Like any mother, Mary had her embarrassing moments too. Like when she and Joseph lost track of their 12-year-old, who also happened to be the savior of the world, and left Jerusalem without him. When they found him in the temple teaching the teachers, he said, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? which is not only a profound theological statement, but also a bit humorous. Mom, didn't you know I'd be in the temple talking theology? Of course, when Jesus was full grown, Mary never stopped being his mother. That's how it works. At a wedding, the hosts were running out of wine, and Mary turned to Jesus. It is possible that she turned to him because the reason the wine was running out was the friends he had brought with him. Perhaps there would have been enough if not for the thirstiness of his disciples. Whether that's true or not, Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you. She knew who her son was, not only in terms of power, but in terms of temperament. She certainly knew he could help, she also believed that he would help, and help he did. In the very first miracle of his ministry, he changed water into about 180 gallons of wine. And in the very last miracle of his ministry, he turned not water into wine, but wine into blood. Take drink, he said. This is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It was the very next day that Pilate would say, Behold the man. And Mary would behold her son, his body lacerated and destroyed by the scourges, a purple robe of mockery draped around him, a crown of thorns pressed down and just above his bruised and swollen face. She was there when they spat on him, accused him of blasphemy, cursed him as a traitor and a heretic. She was there when they hammered the nails through his hands and his feet. She was there when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was not only her son, it was her Savior, as she had sung all those years ago in the Magnificat. And the prophecy of Simeon was true. A sword pierced through her very soul. How else could such agony be described? To witness the torture of one's own son and one's own Lord. Who had known him better than she? Who had witnessed his meekness, his tender mercy, his loving kindness more than she? And they had ruined him. There were probably things that she herself could not and did not understand at that time, at least not fully, as when her son cried out to his father in 
perfect innocence and perfect faithfulness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Apart from Jesus himself, has there ever been suffering like hers? At one point during the crucifixion, in what would be the third word that Jesus spoke from the cross, he spoke to his mother directly. Woman, he said, behold your son. He said this of the young man who was standing next to her. It was one of Jesus' disciples, in fact, the only one of the twelve to witness the crucifixion. He was probably the youngest of the disciples as well, perhaps only in his early teens. It was the very same John who would later write the fourth gospel that we just heard. Jesus said to him, Behold your mother. And as John himself would later record, from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Even on the cross, in unspeakable spiritual and physical agony, Jesus cares not for himself, but for others. He cares for the one who cared for him, his mother. And he cares for the disciple whom he loves, John. He joins two who were not family into family. Some have seen in this a type and an icon, Mary representing the church and John the disciple representing the ministry the two joined into one family by Jesus. Very simply, death breaks our earthly families apart. That was true even for Jesus. Death takes parent from child, husband from wife, sibling from sibling. It leaves empty chairs, empty beds, and hearts pierced through. From the cross, Jesus takes we who are broken and we who are not family, and he makes us into family, one family and one church. He calls us one to another. What joins us together is what joins us to him. We believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And by believing, we have life in his name. Here we glimpse the power of Jesus' blood to cleanse us and heal us, even from those things that hurt us the most deeply. Our deepest hurts so often come from those we love the most. And the deepest sins that we commit so often are committed against those whom we are called to love the most. John himself would later write, The blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us prepare ourselves then for this coming Holy Week to stand, as it were, with Mary, the Mother of God, at the foot of the cross. With her, we will behold the one who loved us more than he loved himself. We will behold the one who shed his own blood 
for our eternal forgiveness. And we will see that our weeping in this life shall be turned into everlasting joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.